Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Red Mage Podcast. So you're probably looking at the Red Mage Podcast and you're noticing a lot of huge differences that are going on right now. Um, One of the most ostensible being the logo, and it is part of a huge rebranding. So listeners who have been with me since the beginning know that the Red Mage Podcast started off um, while I was in grad school and I was slammed. <laughs> Season one was a lot of, of learning and growing pains following um, my my thesis project, which was Quarkspace, an educational RPG where I was kind of looking at ways to help cosplay cosplayers transition from hobbyists to professionals and really kind of broke everything down. It was, to be honest, a little messy, um, and <laughs> it was it was a really good learning experience. Moving forward, I really want to use this podcast as a medium that is refined and iterative to get better and offer a lot more uh, insight into the design process and kind of what I'm doing as a designer. So there is a whole rebranding of this podcast in redesigning logo, creating a site, um, having a shop and Patreon. The first thing I want to talk about is the schedule. Um, the schedule is now going to be, uh, where I release the podcast every Saturday, Saturday at 1 PM. And this is due to me getting slammed with research projects, conferences, um, freelance work, and kind of built really kind of putting a lot of time into these projects to make something that is viable and withstand withstands and resilient and built with the community. The next thing I want to talk about is a website. So. For the longest time, <laughs> the Red Mage has just been on Spotify and Google Podcasts, but I am expanding outwards to be on Amazon, Stitch, and other other mediums. And now, patrons can also, or um, listeners can also join in on on listening to episodes weekly on our website or my website. I keep saying our because I keep always seeing myself as part of a community and addressing these larger issues. So forgive me if I jump between the languages um, or the use of the words sometimes. Um, on, my, on the website, uh, you'll be able to listen in um, directly on a player. Um, it's gonna kind of be building up right now. It just has some, some base information about the mission, how you can support and who I am. And it's going to be very iterative moving forward, seeing what kind of things I can offer on the site, how I could elaborate on it, what I could do to make it more user-friendly and robust and helpful um, in the long term. Right now, it's still very much in its fledgling uh, period, but if I never get to making, it's never going to get done. And this is an iterative process. I touched on this in episode zero. Um... And it's all about getting better. And like any design or any human-centric design, it's really about making, iterating, and refining. So moving forward, there's going to be a lot of updates coming on as more support comes in from the site, which leads me to the next two sections, my shop and the Patreon page. On the shop, I'll be selling some t-shirts, beanies, and mugs. Um, and this is part of my social entrepreneur business model that through, through this medium and through this shop and having these, these avenues for um, revenue, I'm able to fully independently fund research, 
uh, prototyping and the development of kits and in empathy games uh, that help communities. And again, these games could be anything from card games to VR to AR to um, extra games, which are like exercise games or activities, to really just being something kind of tangible or a practice, um, depending on the situation. And this goes back to the definition of games from, um, was it Salem and Zinnerman and Mary Flanagan from Critical Play, being games having a space, having a set of rules, having an objective or outcome, and being you needing to be a willing participant, um, given a duration of time in a, in a given space. So in addition to that, this model is not only sustaining kind of like my life's work and the projects, but it's really to kind of make sure that the work I'm doing is helping underrepresented communities and tackling wicked problems, which I'll be getting into in a bit. And Myself, as a designer, I've been really inspired from my graduate program to take on larger um, problems like homelessness, um, was it, you know, mental health, uh, entre- you know, healthy micro-entrepreneurs, things that are so tied up with everything else that I wouldn't really be able to do working at a larger company oriented more on sales. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I may have to pick up a side hustle on the same time, but this is going to be a long-term project in which I really kind of make sure that I'm, I'm doing something as a designer. And the next part is my Patreon page. So you, we, I currently have three tiers on Patreon um, where you can subscribe for a dollar, five, and fifteen. Each comes with its own um, um, series of benefits. And I'm going to be continuing to add and refine um, these tiers to really make them worthwhile. And I'm only able to kind of work within my means right now. But again, being in an iterative process, as more funding and more support goes, more benefits will come into these to these tiers. More tiers will be added um, that offer a lot of great things. Um, and something I want to offer in both my shop and my Patreon page are workshops. Um, research and a you know a series of live events that really kind of help the community so those are all in the works there's those are long-term um things that i'm looking to integrate um and a couple other items that i'm looking to bring in later on as more support comes in and i'm i have time to work on stuff and be empathy games um kits for designers and businesses to start tackling the double bottom line as well as wicked problems that may plague their their company culture um their workspace or even their community that they're trying to serve so those those are all long-term um projects sorry just adjusting my chair (laughs) but those are those are all things that are going to be iterative that'll be adding little by little um i'll also be looking at bringing in more cool apparel um, I'm trying to bring to supporters the, the best possible quality in terms of shirts, beanies, and, you know, merchandise that is stylistic, enjoyable, and is really kind of like bringing you into this world-building community. Um, next, I want to talk about my mission um, and why I'm doing all this. 
So I mentioned wicked problems. I, I mentioned um, what I what I'm kind of like setting up now, and this is really all about addressing these these large problems that are so complex um, as a social entrepreneur. If I go the route of having to get a series of, of sponsors, there is potential difficulty um, early on in having to meet their metrics and what they're doing. And sometimes that isn't always the best thing. Other times it is. And it's also a process of working with a series of sponsors that have a similar goal and reaching out to them and being able to provide something of value to them. So as I'm kind of working on that, it's going to be a series of of having these um, these items and merchandise and, and subscriptions help fund all this while I start building stuff that I could start working with communities and um, building up sponsors and partnerships that address these wicked problems. And it is really kind of my life's mission, I see, to address this and make this world a better place. And this is the one way that I immediately see that I can do. Through sharing information that I'm finding, through exploring and bringing along my journey to teach you about what I'm doing and really kind of share this so that you can share, be inspired, and tackle your own wicked problems. The game systems I, I work with, um, I'm not looking at making a series of like League of Legends games or FPS games like, um, you know, Call of Duty. I'm looking at very kind of like engaging empathy games that look at making a social or cultural difference. And it's just the genre that I feel really attracted to. There's nothing against like um, Blizzard or, um, you know, Overwatch um, <laughs> or Final Fantasy. <laughs> I, I enjoy playing those games. I am a, an avid gamer. And it's funny because I have to dedicate just one day of the week to get my, my game binge out while then kind of getting back into into this and just having my schedule go. Um, so I'm looking at games as critical systems to or critical technologies to educate, build intrinsic motivation, and address the double bottom line. I'm also looking at ways to use game technologies and game systems to communicate value and meanings of all of the findings that I'm, I'm having and build research and really address larger issues that are going on. Um, and most importantly, educate people. I don't think that education should be boring. Um, and having going through a lot of dry papers, sometimes it could feel that way. But through gamifying our life and making and finding ways to add elements of play and engagement and interaction, there becomes, there builds this intrinsic motivation and this flow um, that really engages us with the material. And that's kind of what my life's work is um, is pursuing. So now I gave you this whole spiel on <laughs> the new branding, everything I'm doing, my mission. I want to talk about wicked problems. And, I, and I've been throwing that word around, but I haven't really been telling you what, they, what it is. So Wicked Problems comes from John Kokel's book. He's a, um, I believe, an, a designer that used to work with IDEO, um, amazing guy. And he has a book called Wicked Problems, Problems We're Solving. And a wicked problem is a social or a cultural problem that is difficult or impossible to solve for as many as four reasons. Incomplete or contradictory knowledge, the number of people and opinions that are involved in that area, and there could be a lot, 
the large economic burden of these problems and the interconnected relationship of all these problems with other problems. John Kokel gives a really good example of, um, of poverty and nutrition and how that's related to education and then that's related to policies and then that's, you know, there's economic elements in there. And they're all kind of interwoven and it's very difficult to kind of denature them and, and address them and say that there's just one solution for this. And it's not something that's very easy. And he outlines about 10 major things that define these wicked problems and creating solutions for them. These 10 things are, one, the challenges and defining the metrics for these wicked problems. It's not like defining a metric for um, a business goal right off the bat, where you just say, well, we have a number of conversions, we're hitting this. It's, it's a, how do you measure you know, mental health? How do you measure, measure progress and the improvement of a, of a community over time? What are, what are the metrics that, that we aren't immediately thinking about? What are the metrics that we really need? The other aspect is the solution is needing to be good, or it needs to be good, and it can only be good or bad. And that comes with, you have to make an effort to make sure that everything is kind of mapped out and it's pushing towards a greater good. And there's never gonna be an in-between, and that's very difficult. And this relates to ethics, which is, what is, what is the impact it's going to have on this community? What is that, what is that defined? How is it just? Is it accessible? Is it inclusive? It, you know, and it's, it's a very difficult thing to measure all that out and see how you're, you're connecting this as you're, you know, working on the scale ability of this. And the next thing is that there's no template to address wicked problems. And this is because each wicked problem is unique and you can't make a one size fits all glove. It's going to be unique to communities. It's going to be unique to the systems. It's going to be unique to the culture, to the social aspects, to the subcultures, and everything that inhabit those overlapping areas. There is no mitigation strategy for wicked problems. Um, and they have a, and um, that's because there is a definitive scientific test because humans invented wicked problems and science exists exists to understand natural phenomena phenomenon and some of these wicked problems are not natural in the sense that there are so many players involved that they're all kind of overlapping and trying to change these things and make a balance but it's not very easy and this isn't something that occurs it's something that we design then a solution is often a one-shot to these changes but exploring iterative design is what I'm looking for um, to lay out foundations for resilient, malleable, and community-oriented project that grows with time and adapts. And originally, it's kind of this one-shot thing because you're trying to like push something that'll that'll be there and address that problem for um, a long time. But things change, cultures change, values change, beliefs change, systems change, and. Part of that, um, in me exploring like iterative aspects of this, um, which I which I picked up from my graduate program, is allowing it to be malleable and resistant, and really kind of being ingrained in the community. So since the community leads that, the community is able to make the changes that it needs to that system or to that framework, so that it's resilient for the future. And the most important thing listed in all of these ten is that. 
the responsibility falls on designers. And this is really, really important because there's always this thing where we as designers kind of build something, we leave it and we're just like, well, if, you know, it was great. It happens, whatever. And we don't know how we're, we, we don't sometimes take into consideration the long-term ramifications this is going to have on a community, on a people, on a culture. And all that's really important. And this ties back into the ethics, the needing to be good, can't be bad, and defining these metrics. How do we measure all this? How do we know that we're doing good? Because we're, we're influencing someone's life. We're making an impact, and that's really important. So taking all this into consideration, this is my mission as a designer, to take on these wicked problems. And I always go over this analogy of myself as a red mage, this kind of like jack-of-all-trades designer. And I say it jack-of-all-trades because while my strength is in design and research, and, and prototyping, actually making stuff. I'm from that research. I'm kind of like getting knowledge from all these different different sections, and I'm here to support a team or a larger communal effort, in which there I'm working with the community and I'm working with people that are professionals and specialists in certain areas. And my role as a designer is really to kind of like act as a bastion to support and make and help guide the process so that it's inclusive, ethical, just, and, and um, iterative. And these wicked problems differ from, from regular problems in the sense that if you have a very difficult problem in a business, there is most likely a template for that. There is most likely a way that you can easily define certain metrics, such as conversions, um, you know, set up your, your marketing and so forth. But in a wicked problem, it's so large that it's intertwined with everything in that when you shift one thing, everything else shifts with it. And it's like, a, it's a very, very difficult thing to balance out. You're not just working on one company or you're not working on just one project that is going to, you know, impact sales or, or metrics. This is on a much larger scale. And not to say that those problems for businesses aren't important, but when you compare, you know, chronic homelessness or people experiencing chronic homelessness to, you know, um, a decrease in conversions in, in Q4 of, uh, you know, of sales, chronic homelessness and, and dealing with that is much larger and has much more gravity towards it. And, you know, those businesses could be doing good. Those businesses could be, you know, part of a community that's supporting efforts. Yeah, but it's part of a larger system that is ingrained in all that. And these these wicked problems kind of overlap with these businesses. And, you know, that it's on a much larger scale. And I, I can't really, like, find the words exactly to, to kind of compare it. It's... It's like having to take care of a house and then having, and then, you know, being a property manager in comparison to having to, you know, work on a global scale and negotiate on things that can really destroy or wreck an economy. And that, that holds like a lot of gravity with it. And there's a lot of social and cultural aspects of this 
that are really difficult to navigate and really difficult to break down. Because again, as stated earlier, there's like so many players in here and there's so many voices. How do you filter all that out? How do you break that down? How do you tackle down the real problems, you know, um, at the at the center of everything? And this also brings up um, opportunities to address UN sustainability goals, which are goals set up by the UN to help make the world a better place. And they're this is a really kind of watered down explanation of it, but UN sustainability goals are looking at tackling these these wicked problems and a lot of things that are impacting people's quality of life, security, um, access to to shelter, food, water, um, fair wages, um, protection, human protection, and human rights, and they're they're aspects that are are much larger and not something that are very that is very easy to address. And as a designer, I'm going to be tackling, you know, one problem at a time and really trying to partner up with, with other organizations or groups so that my, my project or my solution can help really integrate with their systems. So now that we have all these wicked problems defined and everything is kind of like oriented, um, I want to talk about mental health and esports. The wicked problem I'm really going to be addressing in this season is mental health. And mental health is something that is, I've discovered, is very underfunded, has a series of stigmas attached to it, and isn't really kind of given as much attention as it should be given. And I'm examining esports as an extreme case um, of this in the sense of looking at players, um, you know, looking at people who, who are on the computer for 18 hours a day that are impacted by stress and anxiety, have huge um, expectations placed on them, are dealing with burnout, and have to make interpersonal sacrifices. So that's all very stressful, and this is kind of like an extreme case of work and looking at things like what's happening now where we're in the pandemic and we have to self-isolate at home um, and you know we're on the computer 24-7 for work, for socialization, for events, for shopping. It's very, very like overwhelming and that leads to fatigue, burnout, stress, you know, tiredness. Now, these esports players, um, after watching a um, CSBN video, where they kind of followed um, a couple of famous players um, in Valorant and uh, in Overwatch and interview them and, and understand their, their system. These pro esports players spend approximately 18 hours a day practicing. Now, I know that a couple of you may be like, well, they're just playing games all day. But when you're playing games, the, dif the difference between playing games voluntarily for fun for 18 hours and having to do that every day as work for extrinsic um, you know compensation is much different as an individual player who who goes onto World of Warcraft or Final Fantasy 14 or uh, Genshin Impact or any any of these these games um, there is an intrinsic motivation to play and that you you know that you can put down your controller, walk away, have a break, or go do something else. 
and that you're, you're doing it because you enjoy it, not because you have to do it. And these esports players have to perform at a certain level. They have to go in and, and play and, you know, meet these expectations of investors, of stakeholders, of teams. And there's a lot of stress and anxiety that, that impacts them. And these pro players are wrecked with um, stress and anxiety, and that impacts their, their emotional health, that impacts their mental health, that impacts their, their physical health. And this video um, done by CSBN really kind of goes over that and the things that are at stake when you know you, you suffer loss and like how, how trying it is to get to that professional level. And some of some things that we didn't really think about were the interpersonal sacrifices that you have to do, such as you can't be going out because you have to dedicate your time to practicing with your team for 18 hours. You can't date with someone, you can't date someone because that means that you're going to have to be spending time with them when you need to be practicing. You, you, you know, and then your, your team members might get frustrated with that and kind of go into that. And these, these were coming straight from the mouths of players. And that's very, you know, concerning. It's like, wow, there's a lot of sacrifice that you need to make in order to have this esports career. Then there's the overwhelming expectations of audiences. This was talked about in the CSBN video, um, I believe, by one of the uh, journalists, where it's, I think it was, uh, not remembering off the top of my head, but I think it was Richard, um, Richard Lewis that mentioned this. Uh, it may have been some another uh, journalist that was interviewed, but the concept was that people who go out and, and watch this, the fans that go out and watch this, the community that's behind this, doesn't want to see an average player. They want to see a god, and and the god and that that is literally what what it what was said. There they want to see a god player, someone that is invincible, someone that is just like amazing stupendous and the example they gave was of a player named faker who was one of the the greatest league of legends players ever and he is he is insanely talented the number of hours that go into training and dedication to that game are intense that's a lot of of, of mental you know strife that's a lot of you know investment that's a lot of time and dedication to get up to that tier and what happens is there's a lot of burnout that it, that occurs from that and physical damage. Um, a lot of these players that are in esports at a professional level in the hours that they play end up with back pains. They end up um, with with wrist problems. And then once your wrist is done, that you know that is kind of game over for you because you're not able to play anymore. And there's no accessible technology or, um, you know, stuff that would allow for players that have encountered these injuries or enduring these injuries to really kind of, re you know, like be able to play in another way that's more interactive. Yet, I also didn't get um, a chance to really break down into the ergonomics of the products that they're using. Um, so that's something that I'm, I'm kind of noting down and going to be looking into as I further my research. But let's continue on with what um, this video has revealed and all the other research that I've had um, has put into light. So 
an, an athlete in in sports like football or basketball can retire at 30 something or 40 something you know 40 in their 40s that's kind of like an, a much older player but these esports players are starting off really young like around 17 and retiring around 22 to 25 and they're just burnt out and there's a problem that happens that was mentioned in the video where there is this identity of you know i'm an esports player but then what happens after that what is your fallback plan what is you know what what does that do to have your identity ripped from you and what does this burnout do you know can you can you immediately go back to playing games and you know what what is what does this do on on so many levels and it's it's very kind of like concerning so esports really is representative of a high demanding of a, of a job that's very highly demanding and tolling on someone in, in many aspects and the impact of being on a screen for over 18 hours is kind of like equivalent to the form of work we're enduring now in quarantine and that's 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 kind of that's kind of crazy like in articles by national geographic um and i think uh yale news there's been accounts of just people just being burnt out after an hour of zoom now imagine having to be on your computer having like you know well games are more interactive and they're they're more engaging media but when you're doing them for work they be they can become tedious and it kind of goes back to that like that just like fatigue of having to do something repetitively over and over and these esports players are, are mastering down optimizations for for combat um skills when to do something and just trying that over and over and over again and getting that play down is is kind of like going through various iterations of like a pitch deck you know or you know research papers and and things that are, are that we we see as very tedious or even just data entry where it's monotonous for so long or zoom meetings where you're kind of just talking for hours and in yale news one of the um i think it was i believe it was yale news one of the the teachers that was on a zoom meeting said that after an hour they wanted to just pass out and just go to sleep because they had been doing you know class they had been doing their meetings they had been doing their socialization over this medium and zoom is as it is right now is a very kind of two-dimensional aspect it's there's a lot of improvements coming in um with with like gamifying zoom adding things like music players and stuff but it's still a very low interactive medium and it's not a virtual world it's not anything of, of that nature and you're having someone talk to at you for hours and it could burn you out so it that there's a there's a correlation there there's a similarity there for being on that screen time and just being dedicated to work for long periods of time then there's also the expectations that comes with pro esports and I'm talking about pro esports here. I'm not. I'm not yet addressing anything in college or in high school. I'll be getting to that a little later. But the impact of 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 this is there's such high expectations, in this need to to be able to please both investors, your team, and um, you know your your audience, that it's it's insane. 
And when you look at that in comparison to a job that's very stressful and high and demands so much of your time and your effort and your energy, it can be really draining. And that could lead to fatigue, that could lead to like burnout, that could lead to just, you know, physical injuries, um, you know, constant fatigue. And one of the things that happens in esports is that it seems like people are in a state of a flow for such a long time. And I say that it seems like because video games enter a state of flow in which you're kind of rising up to the occasion and taking on um, these challenges and battling enemies at a, at a similar level to you and, and trying to overcome them and become victorious. And so you're very engaged in this and you're, you're performing at your peak. And what I found out is that being in flow for a really long time over and over each day is actually not really sustainable. It burns you out. And that's because um, with flow, you you need to have moments where you're just not productive. And a really good example of this is David Sunno and his burnout from playing Breakout. David Sunno is a um, is a musician um, and an educator, and he really fell in love with uh, Breakout. He wrote a 161 page paper or book on on his experience. And he was playing this game for about 50 hours a day, like a full-time job, or 50 hours a week, not a day, uh, like a full-time job, and overcoming challenges and getting better and better and better. And one day, he was just burnt out from it. And it was because he was in such a state of flow for a long period of time that he just kind of like overexerted himself and he didn't find pleasure from that anymore. He couldn't even touch games for the longest time after that. And... I think there is potential that that may be part of the burnout for and, and reason that these esport these pro esports players are retiring at twenty two to twenty five. More more research needs to be done into that. Um, I may be reading the I'm referencing back to the book Flow. Um, I'm, I'm going to butcher his name, but um, anyways, the author of the book Flow, um, who is a psychologist and really kind of puts into um, perspective how th- how the state of flow works and how it's balanced and how to utilize it. Now the other things are that kind of are enveloped in esports are the social demands. You know like you have to be you know someone that's like that's brandable. What are the responsibilities that fall on this? And there was a, a big thing with Ninja um, about parents wanting him to him to kind of him and others to be prime examples of how people should behave and the debate is like is that really his his responsibility is that any of those responsibilities well i don't have an opinion on this that is something that is like you know something big and that's out there because a lot of the parents and a lot are concerned about their children and i'll be addressing this later on in um in the in the podcast and referencing a book called Moral Combat that talks about the exposure to violent video games and what that really means. But there there are a lot of social demands that fall on these players and on these systems, and it's there's no really clear filtration unit yet um, that, I, that I've yet to kind of like see, I should say. Um, 
as I continue more research, I'll be able to fill that in and really kind of map that out and see if there is anything, how, how efficient it, it is, if there is, and what can be done to strengthen it. Um, if it's potential. Yeah. So the next thing is looking at this as like stress, um, you know, in the sense of like, what are the social demands of workers too? You know, what, what is the value of, of a worker? What is, you know, what is the meaning that we give them? And, you know, we, we've seen it in, in quarantine with a lot of, you know, problems that have arised to say the least in essential workers the safety issues the hazards the the struggles of businesses and the the demands of 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 needing these essential workers to do their job in order to sustain the the country and keep it going but at the co- at the cost of them being exposed or potentially highly exposed uh, or higher risk of them being exposed trying to find out a way to, the best way to word this um to to catching corona and that's really that's really scary because even if it's a younger worker when in the earlier version of or the earlier virus of corona they may recover but what about the people around them and now as the we have mutations that are coming out that are kind of just deadly across the board um regardless of age or, or pre-existing condition it's that's concerning and you know what are what are we really to expect of these social workers where is where is a limit that we draw for their safety and so forth how does that what does that do to them how you know the the stress of needing to work the stress of needing that job the stress of having to pay bills without any real relief then I want to talk about the stress of work-based performance for esports e- players and what that looks like, you know, for, um, you know, kind of question about that in everyday jobs. So for an e- for a pro esports player, there's a need to play, please fans, to gain and keep support from um, investors, to, you know, market and, and perform at a level so that people are you know, are on their side and like supporting them. Um, the hours of practice and I like, I can't, I, I can't wrap my head around it. 18 hours, 18 hours when our, our usual workday is eight. That is intense. And then the physical injuries that they get out of that from the wrist to their back to them, their muscles, they're being sore. Um, there, there's so much that is kind of placed on them and like what is expected of being able to, to, to meet these demands socially. And when we, when we think about that in a work environment, it's like, you know, these, uh, I had, had the pleasure of talking to some, some Google employees and they're saying, it's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's a lot of hard work. They, they give us a lot of amenities. They take care of us. And these, these esports players, um, you know, they, they get like, you know, people to, to give them massages. They have like cooks, they have, um, you know, like homes and, and apartments kind of provided for them. And it's all part of the deal because it's so stressful. And, you know, like the, like these Google, it's like, there's so much work that's done in there 
and sometimes it's just like how do you provide that quality of life and then what are the resources they have for their emotional well-being and so forth because like anyone else they're human you know there there's potential for for loss in the family there's potential for just bad days there is stress and you know questioning your performance and what you're doing and having to be mentally um, resilient and it's a lot and then when we look at employees that are working for minimum wage you know the stress of having to you know balance everything out making sure you have enough gas you know are you able to pay your bills are you able to put food down and you know when we when we think about that that is very intense in Los Angeles the hourly wage that you need to make in order to live on your own is $49 an hour and that's just for for making sure that you have enough for rent and, and to eat you know that's not actually no that's just for rent um, and I believe this was this is taken from the New York Times um, I would have to go back and check my references um, but when you consider like even just having a quality of life, like being able to grab some books, being able to grab coffee, that that's really important. And if anyone makes that statement that, well, you should just budget and, you know, not be able to go out and grab coffee. It's like, why not? Why can't you have a quality of life? Why can't it just be more than just survival? Because your quality of life impacts your emotional and your mental well-being. And imagine that that stress of always, you know, and it's possible that you can just, you know, be a hermit and keep everything in and just have everything kind of stocked up and eat the least expensive things. But is that really a life worth living? Is that really the standard that we want to have? And if so, why? And those are, you know, this is something that is, is to be questioned and to be explored. It's not really having a, a full-on statement. And I, but in my opinion, I think that quality of life is really important. And I'm looking more into research to kind of like balance that out and see like, you know, what, what does that do to a person's mental health? What does that do to a person's like, you know, stress levels? What does that do to a person's well-being and, and perception of themselves? which ultimately could lead to something like depression, could lead to something like anxiety, could lead to something like burnout. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't want to make just a bunch of random statements right now. I, I think that these are very important things to consider. And phenomenologically, I've, I've seen it with, with people. I've seen friends that have had to, like, say like you know what i i can't i can't do this and enjoy the kind of life i want to live i have to you know cut down on this and it, and it sucks and it's hard to eat cans of uh cans of tuna for weeks or top ramen and it's it's rough and then you know my myself like you know this the fear of having to pay back like some like insane student loans it's like yeah that's that's a very big you know burden that's placed on us yet we're we're propelled to believe that we need to have this degree and that these loans are worth it 
and that we need and that we should pay them off and that this is the way that it works and that's just the way it is and questioning it and this process is wrong in every way but why can't it be better what are things that we can do to improve this because what about students that are experiencing chronic homelessness what about students that need the resources from school what about people out there that are you know experiencing chronic homelessness that are sleeping in their cars what about you know the mental health and perception and suicide rates that come out of depression that that is a very serious problem and depression is an epidemic um, there's been a couple of talks from um, a couple of TED talks that I've been looking at where um, where psychologists and doctors are, are talking about the the impact of mental health and you know what what this does to people and it's a really it's really scary so I kind of lost my place in my notes here but um, you know there there's all of these these elements that are play now let's look at esports as a system like it's not just you're not just going to say like esports is just esports esports really is a part of a, a much bigger thing um and i want to talk about esports in high school first so there's a lot of really beautiful things that come out of this one it builds a community two there's a lot of opportunities for scholarships in pursuit of higher education and a lot of students are pursuing um STEM careers, which are science, tech, engineering, and math uh, careers. And then in college, in higher education, you have scholarships, you have teams, you have communities that are built over, over esports, you have support, and you have, you know, these beautiful things. And students enrolling in, in STEM courses and really pursuing these STEM careers to be like engineers or like computer technicians or um, so forth. And what I, what I learned from checking out, um, Jim O'Hagan's podcast and a podcast uh, hosted by Danny Martin called Exposure. These are two separate podcasts, both amazing and highly detailed, and talking about the benefits of these of these systems and some of the the, the struggles and changes that are going on. Um, esports is leading to the launch of a lot of careers of talented players, and it's creating opportunities for for jobs and you know a pursuit of interest in STEM. It's building student communities that are really engaged in learning. And esports really is a viable and marketable system that offers careers to entrepreneurs, creatives like set designers, graphic designers, motion graphic artists, film um, majors, journalists. Um, and it's on a world stage. So it's pretty huge. And I had the, the pleasure of um, listening into a presentation at Dreamland XR where Danny Martin broke down this, you know, the system of esports and, you know, how much goes into the production aspect, you know, how these, these big business ventures are, are investing in esports. And it really is like bridging out to people and communities, um, entertainers, designers, singers. And, you know, one of the, one of the cool things I found in my research was the, League of Legends KDA music video, and I really enjoyed it. And that goes to show not only is like, are all these creatives kind of building in it, there's huge things in technology. We talk about these um, avatars bring, um, 
having life breathe into them as you know music stars it's kind of insane and what i also discovered um through previous research was that there's all these virtual influencers and all these virtual um you know singers like atsune miku um and what if that's you know what if there's potential for the, there being a next step for um you know ari from league of legends being like a social media influencer what are the ethics that are tied into that how does that work into you know the potential for the esports system um for you know who's going to design that who's going to market that who's going to like build up like you know the the position and the branding for all that what's the music going to be like what's the experience going to be like and that's all part of that esports system so there are there are aspects that are really 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 good about this but there are also concerns that come out so let's talk about some of the concerns going back to like the topic of high school one is the hours of, sorry you could probably hear my my cat and my sister in the background um but one of the hours of practice that go into this parents are concerned with how many hours like their 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 children are spending in front of these computers you know the the toll it takes on them you know physically if, if it impacts their sleep schedule um this the stress that students may undergo in balancing school um school studies and you know dedication to this to this hobby or this potential career and one thing that was that was really great in that uh cs um csbc video um wait no <laughs> yeah is that there is this um esports player that had his parents really back him up and there was a huge transition from their first child being brought up to play like classical instruments and doing all this like activities and so forth to their the younger child who's an esports player wow that is a very loud cat um he is my my podcast buddy miles miles the cat um and he is also very concerned about esports players but you know it was um really kind of interesting to see that and how this, these parents are getting super involved in backing their, their, their children up, you know, but what, what does that mean, you know, in balancing out those aspects? And this is something I still need to conduct research on, but it's a very interesting question. You know, how do you support this and how do you balance it out with, you know, making sure that people are taking care of themselves and that your, your children are safe and that, you know, you understand what the systems, the systems are and the opportunities are there um the other thing are social pressures you know what are you know the social pressures that are high school students enduring when they're in esports is it something that um can be be seen as isolating and in that video they had a couple of high school students that were talking about their experience and you know how some people was like oh it's just a video game club but to them it meant so much more and there was a value in it there was a pursuit in it there was a purpose in it and there is kind of like now this this balance of like okay if we're in this club you know we're pursuing the stem career you know what happens when like you know we launch off as you know as a huge player and they were really good and that's 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 really like awesome but it's also kind of like okay cool what's the system that supports that you know um is it possible to pursue like if you get an esports career to balance that out in school 
I saw UCI has an entire esports um, team. CSULB also has one, um, and there's it's it's really awesome to see like the camaraderie that comes up behind that, um, and it's great. But I I still need to do further research into understanding you know what are the work life balances of that, and I think some ethnographic interviews would be really good for that in future episodes. Now let's go into the college and the concerns. <laughs> Um, you know, there, there are aspects like, you know, student homelessness. What if, so what if there are in extreme cases, esports players that are, you know, experiencing chronic homelessness or experiencing temporary homelessness? What if they need access to resources at school that they can't get at home? What if they don't have the budget to have like an entire setup at home and that access in that facility at school was really granting them that like that access to to potential esports career and right now in covid and potentially later on when we could when we're doing hybrid programs and our relationship with technology continues to evolve what is that going to look like then there's an aspect of toxicity this is an aspect that's getting a little better over time and there's a lot more that's kind of like the community's asking out and, and calling but there's problems with, um, you know, gender biases, there's problems with cultural biases, there's problems with, like, people, like, getting overly personal and heated during, during matches, and, you know, when you, when you put it into, into frame where someone's incredibly frustrated and incredibly stressed, and, and they, they break, and it's also a competitive sport, so what's a what's a way to deal with that? What's a way to kind of like address that issue? And is it tied to mental health or is it tied to a larger social issue? I'm still need to research that, but that's something that's been kind of like addressed a little bit in some of the articles I've been reading. And then what does the anxiety look like um, when balancing out, you know, schoolwork, teamwork, and you know, your your personal life? How does how does that work out? Um this is a really good opportunity for some ethnographic interviews um, that I'll be following up with in, in, in um, future episodes. So now that we kind of talked about that, I want to talk about some um, some examples of um, games as forms of therapy. So in, in the case studies that I've been looking at, there is a CNN article on games improving literacy and mental well-being. And this was, they did like a study of, um, with the National Literacy Trust, and they interviewed about 4,626 people uh, between the ages of 11 and 16 across the UK. And there was like a lot of like findings that it improved literacy, it improved mental well-being, that it was like a coping mechanism. And that it was, it was serving to introduce new words, it was serving to like to read stories, and it was through this interactive media. And it's pretty, uh, pretty impressive. And in, in looking at game-based learning, there's a lot of potential there um, that I've, I've discovered in Quarkspace. And, you know, changing behaviors, changing habits, addressing certain things, and, and teaching people about certain models. Um, the, next, the next group I was looking at was Geek Therapy. Um, I am a huge advocate of them. I really, I really like um the concept and 
I really like what they're doing. I have a I have a couple of their books. I just finished um, um, Surpassing the Limit Break, which is really cool look at Final Fantasy as you know, as from a from a critical standpoint, and there is just a treasure trove of, of concepts in there that range everything from the Gasalt um, Gasalt to breaking down music and flow and experience and even dealing with um, the concept of of death and and finding peace and solace uh, with Vivi's story from uh, Final Fantasy IX. Um, and one of the, the pieces of literature I picked up from them was this book called Integrating Geek Culture into Therapeutic Practice, A Clinician's Guide, Clinician's Guide to Geek Therapy. Um, as I'm kind of reading through this book, there's really, it seems like there's a lot of potential and opportunity to use games, um, be that video games or even just kind of like tangible physical games or extra games or VR games to address certain things and, and use narrative therapy to use um, you know, exposure therapy to use role play and it's it's really interesting um, they are they're definitely worth uh, checking out and any any more research I find on that I will be sharing with you on this podcast um, so the last one, the last two things I, I really found were um, scholarly articles by Frontiers in Psychiatry. One article, um, Serious Games and Gamification for Mental Health, Current Statuses, and Promising Directions. So it was a research that was looking at the potential of games um, to impact well-being. And this looked at extra games, which are games like DDR or exercise games which require physical activity or anything that's kind of like with movement. VR games, cognitive-based therapy with serious games and gamification, entertainment games, biofeedback games, and cognitive training games. And what they found was that there is a lot of potential that um, is is latent in these games, but there's need for further research to really kind of like define more and really kind of invest more. But the potential is there, and that's pretty impressive to know that. Um, that games can can be used as critical technologies to help um, impact mental well-being. And when we think of certain apps like Headspace, meditation app, which is also now has a, a Netflix series, which is kind of cool, um, there's this, this kind of like ability to kind of just listen, interact, and just kind of like break away. And there have been a couple articles on games to help kind of like relieve stress and just kind of like decompress where you're just exploring worlds and they're they're pretty interesting um i'm i'm making a, a list of them so i could i could try them out and and kind of take some field notes on that um so i'll be getting back to that um probably in a future podcast um but the other article i wanted to talk about was serious games for mental health are they accessible feasible and effective a systematic review and meta-analysis. This is also done by Frontiers in Psychiatry, and they state that there are findings that indicate serious games for mental health-related symptoms have a potential for various age groups. Now, the type of game really kind of ranges uh, depending on you know on what the the mental health issue is and what can be done, but overall, there's a lot of potential there, and in comparison to um, no therapy through these um, serious games for mental health, they're they're pretty effective. 
and I'm, I'm curious to see what I can do to kind of like bring in these aspects of games and address all that through through a form of play um, for mental well-being and when I talk about mental well-being and mental health you know I think what I'm going to be focusing on is the impact of stress and anxiety from the social and cultural expectations and workplaces and the demands that fall on us um, on a daily on a daily basis and that that's pretty pretty intense when we think about something like depression and I'm talking from experience having having had friends that had chronic depression there is you know moments where there's just like this this production and you know people are feeling good and then they fall back into the state and it's really difficult knowing how as a friend of them to to provide support and knowing the limits of what support I can provide and there was a really good video um, I'll be talking about in a bit that talked about how to communicate and how to address these issues and when we think about mental health and the impacts of that through through gamification and in this esports community um, community and in a larger work picture what if one of your coworkers um, you know has you know a schizophrenic episode or what if someone with schizophrenia wants to play you know these games and and, and really it's a dream of theirs to have a, a career in esports and this isn't this isn't to oust anyone this is to provide an example in which we we should consider designing for inclusivity and accessibility and removing stigmas there's a really good gr uh, group called um, students with psychosis and the founder of that organization Cecilia McGough has uh, schizophrenia and she really talks about it in a humanizing way and there's a curiosity that I had you know, in, when, when doing all this research as to what happens if someone has schizophrenia and they want to, you know, play League of Legends on a professional level, how do we support them? How do we design for something that's inclusive and make a system that supports them? And how do we remove any stigmas that they're, that they're just innately going to harm anyone? Because that's not, that's a stigma that needs to be removed. And listening to a series of, of doctors um, and psychiatrists from TED Talks and from organizations, it becomes very apparent that this is a, a stigma that is malicious, that is debilitating, and that needs to just be done with. You know, and when we talk about mental health, you know, how do, how do we educate ourselves in being able to help those that are, are having a, an episode? or that are concerned, how do we communicate with that? And how do we make them feel comfortable, welcomed, and give them a space? You know, and I, do, I don't know what that would look like in an esports er area, but what if it's someone that's a fan in the arena? And, you know, what if we could have some kind of kit that would help them out? And, you know, or we could have this, this game as a form of therapy to help them. And what role would technology play in that? And how does that improve you know the overall good for the community and these are really big questions that 
I don't have the answers to, and I and I don't want to just make you know bias or like you know off the cuff comments. But these are things to consider when when developing for this. And then what are the ramifications of considering this? Is this something that I could do in the early 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 iterations, or can I lay down a, a piece that would allow this in future iterations to be brought up and addressed? Because one of the things that I'm going to be doing in this is really kind of managing the scope of the project and that entails making sure that um, everything that I'm doing is really kind of meant to be built up over time and iterative and you know adds features and addresses these issues and to be able to get to that level where it's a, a very robust system it has to start off very small and it's going to need to pair up with with people that are in other organizations that are addressing these issues as well. So, you know, that is a, a much a much larger kind of perception of this. And when we when we translate this into stress, like in the terms of mental health and larger picture, like at work and stuff, you know, what about working extremely long hours? What about just unreasonably high expectations of work performances and the impact that it has on us. What are the realistic social aspects that we should consider? What are the realistic, you know, concepts of, of work and, and self-value that we should be promoting in, in these these establishments? And how does, you know, long duration of things like Zoom like impact like, you know, burnout? For students, employees, and, and even micro entrepreneurs that are trying to work their business remotely, um, how do we balance that out? With micro entrepreneurs, there's a really huge thing of like self doubt, and that that could lead to anxiety. That could lead to copious amounts of stress. And what I I discovered when looking at the National uh, Library of Medicine is that uh, in an article called the or a paper called The Effect of Stress on Defense Systems, the more stress, like the more negative stress, I should say, that is placed on in an organism, the more impact it has on their physical health and their performance and their ability to adapt to environments. And I say I stress negative stress because there's also something called use stress, which can be productive, but it also needs to be kind of like aligned in a way that is making sure that people aren't just being like forced to be productive and abused because the answer is falling into negative stress and you stress is really the pursuit of a larger goal and, and something that you want to get better at and you're intrinsically motivated to get better at you know and when you're how do we how do we introduce that into these systems how do we motivate people and that's those are those are very big questions and how do we shift away from negative stress um, and this is this is a really big problem because when we look at at stress the World Health Organization has an entire um, outline of mental health and occupational stress and anxiety it defines a toxic workplace what defines what negative stress is defines how to identify and prevent it how to also kind of treat it and remedy it and how to bring it to attention because when you're just overly stressed and anxious at work it's not healthy for you and it wouldn't be um detrimental if it wasn't in the, in the world health organization like it it's it's being recognized 
Um, and when we when we talk about that, there there is there's so much like what is what are, what are the factors that are impacting stress? And I don't want to just to make like you know speculations, but the assumptions I'm going to to make and that I'm going to challenge through research are that there is a very high demand in the work environment, that there is not um, adequate pay, that there are systems in place that make it inaccessible uh, for everyone to have equal and just and secure access to representation and resources, that there is stigmas attached to looking out and speaking up, that there is um, a lack of empathy in certain in certain work uh, environments that needs to be addressed, and that there needs to be some kind of overarching system that is is enforcing this in these workplaces to ensure that these um, businesses and the, these employees are being treated fairly. The employees of these businesses are treated fairly. Um, so these are the assumptions I'm making, and through research, I'm going to go ahead and challenge them, see which 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 align up, and which don't. And the reason I'm, I'm in saying that I'm making these assumptions, I'm going to challenge them with research, is because that's actually a, a, a tactic or a method to kind of remove some of the bias that's that's in here. Um, I'm not referencing every single piece of information that I'm I'm doing right off the bat because it's copious. There's there's a very long list of um, of citation, and I'm looking at a, a reasonable way to provide that. Uh, in this podcast, and also um, ways to kind of share all this research with people. Um, so that that's something that, as mentioned earlier at the beginning of the episode, the shop as to how do I share this as best as I can. But there, there are so many methods and so many approaches to this that these are the methods that I'm using best for addressing this. And one of the reasons for that is that during the time of COVID, I'm not let, like it's very difficult to kind of go out and interview someone physically or go to these organizations and visit. And there's a lot of kind of like shifting around and, and talking to people online and networking online virtually. And it's very different um, trying to, to do that on a virtual level for these organizations um, because it's it's different exper- experience that I'm trying to get used to. And I feel that it differs from the virtual ethnography um, that I've done in virtual worlds and being able to communicate with with, uh, communities there because there's so much ingrained into that digital native lifestyle that, you know, being able to respond to them on on Discord or on, um, you know, through uh, some kind of messenger or in the game is, is quick, but communicating through email and and so forth, there's a lot of things that kind of get lost or kind of like they don't get answered too much later. And I'm very thankful to everyone that's been um, kind of talking with me and sharing resources. Um, again, a shout out to Jim O'Hagan and, and Danny Martin, uh, who are doing fantastic jobs and really helping improve this system to make careers in esports. And I hope that everything that they've provided me, I'm able to maximize to kind of piece together 
what I can do and provide a, a better service for communities. Um, so going back to uh, some of this, this larger picture, I also did a popular media search. And my, this, is my, this is my absolute favorite because I enjoy watching TED Talks. Um, and I have a couple that I, I discovered. So Leon Taylor on how to manage mental health really broke down like on finding that activity, finding that intrinsic motivation and that love and passion and how to kind of like keep that up. And there was a really great story where he injured his shoulder and after multiple surgeries, he just, he was trying to get back, but he wasn't performing. He was falling off um, of his, of his performance. And his coach just said like, you know, so why do you do this? And he's like, cause I love it. And you know, he thought about it and he's like, yeah, he's like, I want to have fun with it again. And he was able to get back into that and get out of that, that slump. That's, that's really difficult, you know, but that's also a physical, physical sport where he's, you know, competing for in the Olympics and doing all these like physical mediums. But how do we translate that into a space where it's virtual or work oriented? You know, what, you know, does that raise up the question of, it raises up the question, I should say, of, you know, why do, why am I doing this job or why am I, why am I here? And it's because I love it, you know, or is there, are there certain barriers or complications with that? Um, the next Ted talk that I, I saw was, uh, Dr. Xavier, um, Am Am Amador and talked about the stigmas, uh, the, about relating to, um, mental illness and how, there is this just like really bad perception of the way that we talk about it, the way that we address it, and the way that we have, you know, no very efficient systems currently in place on a, on a large scale to address all of these issues. And because they're wicked problems, it's not, it's not easy. And he recounted the story of his brother um and how he kept saying these like you're 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 ill you need to see a doctor you need this and it resulted in this kind of like splitting and and divide in the relationship and ultimately as he continued into his 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 program um he found that that the way that he was communicating with his brother was all wrong and that he switched it and he was able to you know, build up this relationship with his brother again and really um, put into into play, like getting his brother help and getting him on meds and his brother's life improved dramatically from, you know, he was from being homeless and um, or being chronically homeless and experiencing like isolation and being in and out of hospitals and, and being arrested to having a full-time job, to having a girlfriend, and to, you know, having a, a strong relationship with his family, it was really, it was really like, touching. And he started talking about the necessity of having resources in that community, how to educate people, how to create preventative measures that address this, and not just be, um, you know, uh, reactive to everything. Then there is a, a really good TED talk by Jeannie Wohler, um, who is a uh, 
a college uh, soccer player and who built her entire identity around um, being a soccer player. And when that was stripped from her, she lost her identity and there was this huge kind of like emotional despair that was wound up with all that. And it led to a journey of finding self-support and defining one's self-worth. And really kind of ending on a note of like being dedicated to, to something and, and being at ease with saying, I'm not just the work I do or not just this, I'm so much more. And I want to relate that back to um, esports and to um, jobs and mental health because if someone has an entire career and they're burnt out and they, they come off, you know, what do you do next? Like, how do you, you know, what do you do? Where do you go from there? I don't know. That requires a little bit more research and that's a very interesting thing. Like how, how tied to the identity is being an esports player? To what level does that impact you? And at work, there, there have been a lot of, um, you know, not at work, but in researching how this relates to work and employees, there's been a series of um, articles and articles and posts on things like Tumblr and Twitter where people talk about, and this is why it's in popular media search, but it's talking about like just how they experience um, being overworked and that their work is like their identity, and then finding moments where they they're not fully productive in this work. And how that impacts their view of themselves and what it what they what they feel their value is, is you know pretty pretty concerning, especially now in the pandemic, which so many people lost their jobs. It mean you know what is that what does that do, what does that mean? How do we how do you address that? How do you help maintain and let people know that they're they're more than just their work? How do you help build an identity out that? How do you make support systems? that address this as a mental health issue and emotional health issue. The last TED talk that I saw was by Master Shi Hang Yi, and it was about self-mastery. And it really was about kind of like being at, at peace with oneself and being, you know, okay with the work and everything that you need to do to complete your journey. And there was a really good story that he, he said that his mentor taught him. And it was a story of a, of a man looking to climb a mountain. So this man lives near this mountain, and he, he always wonders what it looks like at the peak. And he wants to go up there one day. So he go, he decides one day, he's like, I'm going to go, and I'm going to climb this mountain. And he, he sees a traveler that comes down, and he's like, hey, how did you go up that mountain, and you know, what did you see? And he gets a little deterred by how rigorous that, that path that that traveler took was. And... But he is kind of inclined to see, to see how beautiful it is. So deterred by how difficult it is to climb that mountain, he ends up. This man ends up going around and asks like about thirty other travelers what what their path was and what they saw. At the at the end of all these these interviews, the man decides that he doesn't need to climb the mountain. That he's going to go back home, and that he it's it's too arduous, and that. Because he's heard of what everyone else has seen, he he already knows what's up there, and he'll be fine. And what this really kind of gets at is that you you don't really get that reward just by listening to other people. It's like you need to be a participant, and it comes with blood, sweat, and tears. 
it comes with struggle. It comes with self-mastery and dedication and, and craft and and being, you know, invested in it, that there's an intrinsic motivation, that there's a passion for it, that there's a purpose that you have. And just because someone describes what a mountaintop looks like to you, it's never going to be the same as experiencing it yourself. And then he talks, um, uh, Master Yi talks about these, um, these obstacles and things that kind of weigh us down. Things that we, you know, we, we, we bring ourselves with self-doubt. We, you know, we are scared to kind of, you know, let go of something that's a, a certain status and so forth. And he ends up talking about um, a concept called RAIN, which is to recognize, accept, investigate, and non-identify. And when things go wrong and things are tough, that you, you kind of break away from it and then you accept it and then you can find a way to get around to what you want to do and you carve your own path to get up that mountain and we may we may all be walking on that mountain but we're all on our same paths and sometimes we may kind of cross paths and intertwine but at the end of the day it really is what we're what we're doing to get to where we want to be and experience what we what we want and it's and it's difficult there's a lot you know in there and you know it's it sounds like there is opportunity to to really kind of work on mental resilience and you know men, mental health and, and knowing that it's okay that there are going to be tough times and it, there's these elements at play that you can't necessarily control but that you can navigate around or, or through in with a series of you know resources and strategies and knowing that it's just part of the journey the last part the last thing i was looking into was yoga um i was really interested in seeing it as a form of stress relief and fitness and it helps a lot with um in a couple of articles i read um that yoga as a practice kind of helps reduce long-term stress um it helps kind of get you fit and there's a lot of like just benefits that you you get from joining a yoga community having talked to um someone that is in the the wellness community there are also um certain problems that come up with that in the over romanticization of of yoga and the and elements that may be a little bit superficial um but yoga as a practice in itself has potential for for stress relief and for fitness. Um, then I want to explore uh, going forward for next steps, working on interviews to address stress in the workplace. You know, I want to look at you know how this impacts employees. What are the ramifications of high stress? What are, um, what are models or what are better models that we can put in place? What are the resources that are out there? What are the resources that we're lacking? And how do we implement them? What are programs and organizations that are tackling this? Um, finding out some case studies and conducting some ethnographic interviews. So that's kind of where I'm heading next. And this is still early on in the discovery phase in the research phase and trying to like understand this entire system and, and putting things out there and just getting exposed to all that before I start defining or, or trying to bore anyone with my genius. And I say that because um, 
in my graduate program, there was a mentor that railed on me, and I love her for it. And she wasn't mean or anything, but she she would she would call me out on when I was just kind of bunny hopping to ideas, and she broke it down to me, saying that you know I'm there are so many geniuses in the world that you know people will design for but they'll never design with and it is through designing with that we make something that is resilient and that is what the community that we serve needs and going into this discovery phase and world building as a methodology it's the biggest phase for in my opinion or actually just just factually because you need to know the systems at play. You need to know everything that's working together. You need to know, you know, how does it expand outside of just this one area? What are all the players involved? What are the organizations involved? What are, um, what's the lore of everything? What's the space look like? Um, how do we, how do people navigate through that space? What are, what are users feel? What are models that are in place? And what's the community look like? What's the subculture look like? And, you know, it's, it's, it's huge. It's, it's a very vast thing. So, you know, when exploring esports as this kind of like extreme condition where someone's like on this for 18 hours a day performing and, you know, seeing this as a, as a line of work. Sorry, my cat, my cat saying, you've spoken too long. You're getting at the end of the episode. Um, you know, it's, it's really, it's really important. So the more this research phase in world building is very big and this is the first one of the first episodes in season two in addressing mental health and looking at esports um that i will be conducting research and i'll be continuing this for for a bit um because it's a larger phase then i'll be going into the define um and develop uh and deliver after I have enough to kind of like piece things together and I'll be sharing with you what I'm, what I'm finding. Um, so on that note, um, that I'm still really early in the East in the research phase, I'm exploring systems in various aspects of mental health and esports, And I'm trying to kind of like see how everything that's connected to it. Okay. I'm ending the episode cat. <laughs> Sorry. He's very enthusiastic. Um, and I'm trying to piece everything together and see like the large picture and then be able to also understand like the mac the microcosms of this. Um and I'm trying to avoid boring people with my genius. This isn't about me just showing off and just developing something and being like, hey, this is new coolest thing. This is really about value co-creation and building with the community and not for the community. And that's why these ethnographic interviews and and, and all this research phase is important. So my next step in this, after saying that, are looking at ethnographic interviews, doing some field activities, more literature review, and really kind of piecing together like what all this system looks like. So now my cat is very impatient and he demands food. Um, so I'm gonna conclude this episode here. So as I conclude this, uh, this, this episode, please consider checking out the shop and subscribing to my Patreon page. The support helps fund research, prototyping expenses, and deploying the MVP um, for each season. And as I support, um, as support for the show continues to grow, I would love to provide additional resources, tools, and workshops to help designers, researchers, and community address their double bottom line.
the first bottom line is always going to be the value they generate and the entrepreneur objectives and metrics. But the second bottom line is the meaning, the purpose, and the social and cultural good that positively impacts communities, underrepresented individuals and groups, and makes a larger global scale that over time will start hopefully changing things. And I say that because these are wicked problems and they're very difficult and intertwined so much. But that's enough of my spiel about checking out my Patreon and my shop. At the end of this episode, I want to just reiterate that this world is wrought with wicked problems and it is our responsibility as designers, entrepreneurs, and so forth to make it a better world. As a red mage, I see it as my job to tackle one of these wicked problems, and I hope that you join me in this effort in any way that you can. Be that sharing this podcast, joining with an organization, or finding ways to address the wicked problems in your community. Till next time, stay fantastic. Red Mage out. Thank you.